0: Word for the Week is a podcast of Canaan Community Church, dedicated to the balance of scripture for the wholeness of life. Learn more at canaancommunity.org. This chapter in itself is a manifesto. Just the first chapter. We could spend forever in only the first chapter of John. But this morning, we're not gonna spend forever we're going to pull out three major truths and then uh, unpack them a little. And I'll explain why these will be so important as we go along. These three major truths, I'll just put it this way, if you have trouble in your Christian walk, or you have, uh, as, as uh, uh, Pastor Chris and his cohort in there were talking about atheists uh, hitting a disconnect with Christianity, chances are, that it's going to be one of these three major truths that um, John is uh, laying out in this first chapter. And I'll start, uh, before I unpack them, just listing what those three truths are. Jesus the Christ is. Two, Jesus the Christ is singular. And three, Jesus the Christ is proven those three things set up this chapter now let's just uh dive in and, into them a little bit and see see what they really mean jesus the christ is sounds simple enough doesn't it jesus the christ is but it is in fact the most profound you know i, I appreciate if somebody was bringing up maybe it was even pastor chris talking about the meat of the word and getting into the meat no it was mark i think mark you were mentioning that and it discovered this, and I know Mark has too, that when you talk of the meat of the word, it's not some, some involved doctrine somewhere. The meat of the word is understanding the most basic statements to the full extent. That's the meat of the word, and there's no shortcuts. And this is the first one. Jesus the Christ is. Uh, Jesus the Christ is. It's an existential statement, isn't it? Jesus is uh, the great I am. Isn't it something, God? We sang that song today. Kathy was so good about it. I had to replace the song, and then I said, Kathy, put that one back in. She said, okay. So then we put the songs back in. Because the great I am, Of all the names for God to call himself, what does he call himself? All the names. We have 200 Hebrew names. I am. The great I am. When he says that, what is God really saying? I have always existed. I exist right now. I always will exist. It's this simple. I am real. I am real. And let me say this, is that, you know what, that is the first and the greatest hurdle in coming into a relationship with God, is the idea that God is real. Uh, we think of the last uh, great Schubert study, and I'm thinking of that, Chris, who, we were saying, do you believe what is real is really real or something? I don't know if you remember how that question went, but it was something that, to that effect is, do you believe God's real? Okay, do you really believe that what you believe is real is real? <laughs> you get enough reals in there. God really exists. God is, exists. He is a personal being, a personal entity, and he is in, infinite. He has a human face. He has a human name. He has a heart. He has a plan. To embrace Christ is, is the first necessary strip uh, uh, step in, in a relationship with the one true God. How far you go with God is really real. Sets up everything else. And it's not surprising the greatest level of rejection has always been on this point, that God is real in the first place. And, and the great hurdle, the great obstacles we throw up, uh, uh, humanly speaking, it's not the, the great claims in the books and all of this. It was something else. Uh, Mark shared that. Mark, I could have wrote that one down as we were on the same page. Is the greatest hurdle, the greatest hurdle in, in, in staying in the uh, mindset that God is real is what you go through every day. Think of the torrent of things you go through every day. And it's like raindrops and soil erosion. Nothing is big in itself. It's just it never stops. You turn on the TV and there's some dismissive dialogue about God. Just a little thing, but it's there. You go out and you don't have to go far and you hear uh, someone using the Lord's name in vain like it doesn't mean anything at all. And it's not much, but it's just another raindrop, just another one that's there. Um, uh, It's this stuff just eating away at the foundation of this one phrase, Christ is. Because if God is God, you're not that flippant. He's either God in a very serious way or he's not God at all. This is where we find... I talked about this being the most ambitious book in Scripture. And you might say, well, why? At least in the New Testament. is because John is building an impossible bridge. And it's not just between humanity and God, which is, of course, an impossible bridge for us to build, but between human worlds, between human worlds of thought. He is building the first bridge between the Hebrew faith and the Greek intellect. When we think about these two worlds, how different, it's very hard for us to, um, to, to really appreciate it, but we're looking at the difference between Eastern and Western cultures, hemispheres. Eastern uh, ways of thinking and Western ways of thinking they're polar opposites. And just in case we don't think it doesn't involve us, we're Western thinkers. We, uh, our whole way of thinking is based basically on how the Greeks reasoned. So we're on that side of things. And the Hebrew culture was saturated with this concept of the the difference. If they thought a lot uh, differently in a lot of things, God was like the epicenter of how different they were. The Hebrew culture was saturated Uh, with the concept that God was active in the human world. God was involved. God got his hands dirty in the world. He, He led as a pillar of smoke and fire. He filled the temple with his glory. He disciplined his children. The idea of an anointed Messiah coming was around for centuries. For the Hebrew faith, God got involved in the world. Well, for the Greek culture, the divine was just about the opposite. One way it was divine, you defined it, was that the divine didn't get messed up with the dirtiness of the material world. The the divine didn't care about human affairs. It, it was impersonal as fate itself. Uh, the idea of love wasn't an issue. The divine... Uh, was just this thing that uh, the fates did what the fates were going to do and you just didn't tempt the gods. That's what it was all about. So if they were thinking not just a multiplicity, but even if you were to get down to one true God, the idea that a one true God would come onto earth was repugnant. That's silly talk. God the divine doesn't get messed up with stuff on earth. That would be a lot like saying, you're going to take the entire Atlantic Ocean and put it into an eight-ounce glass. Because essentially, that's what the incarnation is. The infinity of God came in a finite baby, like these sitting here now. How did all of God get into one of those little packages? But the Hebrew people didn't have a problem with that. The Greeks couldn't make sense of it. It was just nuts. And here is John, he, he's reaching out now beyond the first Hebrew faith, the first Hebrew Christians. He's trying to make the bridge into the Greek world. He's looking at this and he says, how am I going to do this? The Eastern world is mystical in its thinking. The Western world is empirical. The Eastern world wants to embrace the divine. In the Western world, it says, smarter to avoid the divine. What common ground, what possible common ground could be between these two opposite worlds? And there's John. I can just imagine him thinking and praying and praying and thinking. And ultimately, God hits him with one term. Bing! The bridge is now made. Oh, really? What what was it? Well... See, the thing, even though they saw it in different ways, for the Hebrew language that was half the vocabulary of the Greek language, it was really for the same reason, because the word was so precious. And the word was so powerful. For the Hebrew, a word took on a life of its own. When it left your mouth, or when it left your quill, it took on a life of its own. Did you ever wonder why, as we think of the story of Isaac and uh, Esau and Jacob, how um, uh, Isaac, um, uh, you know, does this thing where he gets fooled by Jacob and, and, and then uh, he, he gets the blessing of his father and, and his father would love to take it back because it wasn't his oldest son, but he can't. It's because once the word has left your lips, it can't be taken back. It's a life of its own. It takes on a life of its own. Words were precious to the Greek, but for different reasons. Uh, The words conveyed an idea. The word transformed the mind. The word was the tool that you develop powerful arguments and that you were able to change the the lines of reason and rhetoric within people. Words were powerful things. So here's John, and he begins in this work to join the Eastern and the Western worlds because Christ is for all the world. And so he starts out with this. In the beginning was the... Oh, man. Absolutely brilliant. Not John, but God putting it into his mind. And word in the English is kind of loosely translated. The whole idea of logos Uh, it it meant far more than that in both the Greek and the Hebrew. You're talking about something that was alive in itself. God uh, was, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, such a statement to the Hebrew was fairly self-evident. Yeah, sure. To the Greek, it echoed in them, because it would go back 600 years to... uh, 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 this word Logos that was first labeled for the divine by one of their own um, philosophers, Heraclitus, back in uh, uh, 600 BC. I bring it up because the word had divine meaning for both people. The word-word had divine meaning for both groups of people. Now you're saying, okay, why all the history lesson on this? Just simply to point this out is that what seems totally divided, that we could never see a bridge between that group or that person, God has a way to build the bridge. And John is a complete illustration of this. So he builds this first pillar, and then from there everything starts falling into place. John uh, 1, he continues in through 2 to 5. He was in the beginning with God. So this word was not simply a power. Now this word was a person. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was nothing made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. made perfect sense in both Hebrew and Greek, I didn't say about this philosopher, but when he used uh, the term uh, logos for the divine reason, it meant that which controlled and changed the universe. Hebrews had no trouble with that. Yeah, God controls and changes the universe. The word word bridged everything. One word, word, (laughs) logos. In our time, it was interesting listening to uh, Pastor Chris bringing out the fact that we live in a postmodern culture. So as as the class was in there running over things in their mind, they were realizing we've got whole new bridges now that we're trying to bridge. Uh, I didn't even get into it, Chris. I almost threw it in there. I said, "That's all he needs is another monkey wrench in the gears." But as we were talking about trying to present truth, and is that, but the truth is in a postmodern culture, there is no such thing as truth. So then we really get caught. But yet, there is a bridge. Somewhere there is a bridge. You don't know it. I don't know it. John didn't know it, but God knew it. And he brought it to life through John. So much that it seems that can't be connected. Christ is. That is true. Christ is real. That is true. You can't convince anyone, but God can. And John is an illustration that God does it through people. The world's filled with personal and even cultural disconnects with this one term, Christ is. For some, there's no God at all. For some, he's just a metaphor. For some, he's a tool to control the masses. For some, he's a crutch. For some, he's a fabricated hope. For some, he's nothing more than a moral code. All these partial connections. But until we reach the point where God, where Jesus Christ is real, Christ, Jesus the Christ is, we're in trouble. You know what the worst one is of all, though, in these partial disconnects, really? You find it a lot in churches. It's worth mentioning, is probably the worst partial connect is Christ is a possibility. Why would I think that's the worst? Well, it's because that's where we entertain the idea, where we, maybe we even come to church and say, you know, it could be that God is real, Could be. Not totally sure, but could be. And why it's so dangerous is because as people, we're so good at getting halfway into something. Whether it's sports or learning a new skill or something, we get just enough to make it kind of functional. We just do that as people. And Christ as a possibility is that type of thing. It's a partial connection. Well, what does it look like? when we have that partial connection. Well, in life it would look something like this. You sit here and you go, yeah, Christ is. And then you go out and then somewhere around Wednesday or Thursday, you kind of go, well, I'm not so sure anymore. Or right now it could be, if God is God, he is the most relevant thing in the universe, and right now God's really relevant. And somewhere around Friday before you get back into church somewhere, you go, nah, he's not really all that relevant and you're on this roller coaster ride because he's only halfway there. Does Scripture support that idea? Well, let me throw you out some anecdotes, if you don't mind. One of my favorites, this is something that sticks with me all the time. Do you remember the father? He has a possessed child. Uh, He brings him to Jesus to be uh, healed and delivered, And Jesus says to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. So what in effect Jesus is saying here is not that your faith is the power. He's saying that if you're all in with me, if you're all the way on the Christ is real thing, then all things are possible. And this man picks up on it, in total honesty, and he says one of the greatest lines, I think, in Scripture. He says, Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, he said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He realized that that extra mile he had to go, he couldn't do on his own. And as I said, it's not our faith. It's not our faith that releases the power of God, but there is the connection that must be made in order to experience the God of power. In another event, we have Jesus talking to his disciples in Matthew 16, 15. He says, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Well, there it is. There's the question. This is the whole Christ is question. And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for you figured this all out on your own. So, is that what it says? Oh, okay, I, I heard you know, grunts of discontent when I said that. That's good. I wanted to hear that. That would be scary if everybody went, Amen. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. To get all the way on understanding Christ is really real is going to take more than your own effort. It's going to take God himself. Halfway acceptance is the out-of-our-own-ability thing. Embracing the reality that Jesus the Christ is is actually impossible without the revelation of God himself. Somewhere God has to reveal that final mile to you himself. So if you and I have trouble, just a life hack, maybe we need to borrow from that father and say, Jesus, father, I I believe, but help my unbelief. Maybe that needs to be a prayer of ours. And what's the reward for all the way in your belief? What's the reward for believing Christ is really real? Well, it's not until Peter makes this proclamation that Jesus then says in Matthew 16, 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The key to getting into the kingdom of heaven is to come to the firm and all-the-way belief that Christ is really real. There it is. There's the key. A rock-solid understanding. So Christ is, is the first statement. It's a big one. It is huge. And you can't even do it all on your own. How about the second one? What do I mean in that? Christ, Jesus the Christ is singular. Jesus the Christ is singular. Well, that's to say there's only one of them. That's uh, toughy. I think we c- you covered that a bit in class today again, too, Chris. The idea of a singular God, there's no parallels, no facsimile. There's a saying that you might, might not realize how huge it really is all through the New Testament. John uses it by John 1.14. He says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the... Only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It's so important we have what's said in John 3.16, don't we? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The term "only begotten" in the uh, Hebrew they were using—it was—it was more like the one and only—is the way it would read, monogenous. In the in the Greek, it literally meant one generated, and you find it only a few times in all the Bible, uh, in Hebrew or in the Greek. Abraham and Sarah had a one and only child, one of a kind child. In the divine sense, it means a manifestation of God in a way that does not happen, never did before, never will again. The one and only manifestation of God. Now, you consider this, who he is talking to. John is building a bridge between the Eastern world and the Western world, between the Hebrew and the Greek. Somebody got it there. And this idea of Greeks and Romans had 12 major gods and then there was a whole bunch of other ones floating around in there. So to claim the only begotten, do you realize how huge that is? And you know what? Judging from what we're learning and as we're talking about the post-Christian and the post-modern culture, It is a relativistic culture. It is going back to the same thing. There's a whole bunch of truths. There's a whole bunch of things to follow. We need to invent new myths, right, Chris? Uh, As as he was quoting from this um, author uh, during class, only begotten is huge. It's as big as Christ is real. And the question then becomes, well, then, is Christ too exclusive? The question isn't, is Christ too exclusive? It goes back to the first one. Is Christ real? And if he's real, it answers that question as well. He is the one and only. He is the one and only. How does that work in the culture today? As I was writing this, I was thinking back a ways. That really interesting. Every now and then you get on a, a plane, you ride them enough, you know, passenger planes, and you get set, sitting next to some interesting people. And one day I was sitting next to a very nice man, very polite, very gentle-mannered, and noticed he had a book, not quite this big, but he had a book and it was open, and he was in the window seat. And I could, saw, saw that he was doing something a little different, subtle but different, he was looking and I would kind of see him doing this. And then I started catching the word Allah in there every now and then. So we had an interesting conversation on Islam. He said, would you like to look at this? And it was kind of like a little summary through I said, wow, there's some really great teaching in there and there's some real wise stuff. And we get talking. And he found out that I was a Christian somehow. Don't know, but he did. And um, as we're talking, he said, you know Islam believes, and acknowledges Jesus as a great prophet. And I thought about that for years after on that and, and really came to the conclusion, do you realize for a religion to think of Jesus as a prophet is maybe the biggest affront to Christianity than even beheading Christians? And I say this because if you stop and think about it, a prophet is... Humanity clothed in the divine. A Messiah is the divine clothed in humanity. That's a major, major difference on what's going on. That goes back to the question, is Christ really real? Is Christ who he says he is? Because he's that or nothing at all. And hence you must have the phrase, it can't be left out, the only begotten the only begotten, there is only one Christ or there is no Christ at all. It can't be anything else. So here in the building of this bridge, you have John with these major pillars. Christ is. Christ is the only begotten. And then the third pillar is Jesus the Christ is proven. Jesus the Christ is proven. It gets very interesting, and this is where it helps, is a, another thing that came into uh, uh, the class. I should just come in and do your class in here, Chris. This is, Chris got so many great things that come up between people in class. And he was asking about technology, and Mark went into how, um, if I understood correctly, using technology you find out all these facts. And you can find out a lot of stuff. And if you do this with John and you look into the history, John is dealing with um, a Jewish church, a Messianic church. And there's all kinds of undertones, of course, of the Jewish faith and mindset happening in there. Uh, try this one. I'd say for a cup of raised coffee, but it sounds like we got to wait a week or two to get that back. But let me throw this out. What does the number seven mean in, in Hebrew thinking? Any? Completion? Fulfillment? Perfection? You guys are pretty smart. You guys get all, you must be on the, on the computer like Mark. And that's true. So the number seven by what all of you said, fulfillment, completeness, perfection is a God number. Seven is a God number. It is the complete number. And it's rather interesting how seven gets used throughout the book of John. The number seven is used, John tells seven miracles. Or he doesn't use the word miracle, he uses the word sign. Once again, a Jewish thing. The The Greek word uh, uh, or the which gets translated into the Latin signum, we use it as the word signal, insignia, signature, proof, and even a banner to follow. That's the word he uses. And he uses it seven times. It's rather interesting. S- seven miracles. Three were suspensions of physical laws. Three were healing, and one was a reversal of death. And he tells only seven. Why only seven? Well, considering John 21-25, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So there's lots and lots. It's not even like here's the top seven. It was just that seven from these different areas are told. Why? In John's own words, we'll see when we get finally down to John 20, chapter 20, uh, eventually, he says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, uh, that believing you may have life in his name. The idea is life in Christ. Well, I need proof. Here it is, the perfect fulfillment of truth. Seven miracles handpicked in order for us to have all we need. Is there proof that Jesus is really real? There's enough. All you need around it. There's a, if you go to the transcript, you'll find a hyperlink in there to an article that really goes into these um, uh, miracles and how they relate to Old Testament views. But in the idea of proof, what is he saying? He's proving he's the bread of life, he's the light of the world, he's the gate to heaven, he's the uh, good shepherd, he's the resurrection in life, he's the way, he's the truth in life, he's the true vine. There's enough evidence it is complete to show you that Christ is and he is the one and only. But what if we are partial in this level of connection? What if we have trouble with the proof? How does it show? Well, what if truth is only relative? It's a roller coaster ride. What if he's away, but only when it's convenient? It's a useless faith. What if he is the doorway, but there are a whole bunch of other doorways? Then he's a lie. What if he is the vine, but you don't really need him as long as you've got enough of your own efforts going on? Now, we looked at three pillars, and the idea wasn't to challenge us so much in a a way of conviction or an indictment or judgment. It was to show how the job is done. One is God can bridge his way through you to any group he desires or any person. God can even build a bridge between you and your own heart. God can build them, but it takes him to build them. In this way, though, be no mistake in this. Make no mistake in this is that in these three pillars, there's a reason they're laid down in the first chapter is because if we have problems with any of these threes, if if we're these three truths, if we're not connected, we will stumble in our faith. On the other hand, if those three are firmly connected, you are in for a powerful experience and relationship with God. These three brings me down to really two questions. Maybe these are a little bit of a challenge. Is First is, how intentional are we on just these three things? Just those three things. How important, how much effort do we put into finding out God is really real? How firmly do we, whole to the he is the one and only. And how much do we understand how he is proven? You can only go so far in your own intention, but it does have to be an intention. Because we also know when it comes to going a whole way, turning that last ounce on the screw, if you will, and tightening down that connector, is that to do that you need God's revelation himself. You and I cannot do it. So there's only one way for us to end a message like this on the manifesto of chapter 1 of John, this amazing bridge book, is we have to ask God because we can't do it. We've had some great prayers today. Jim opened in prayer. We prayed again for need within the church as we prayed for Ray. Ray. But, you know, this one's more for you and me personally, is I'm telling you directly from the authority of Scripture that you cannot do what we just talked about for 30 minutes. But God can. So I'm going to, the the only way I can think for us to all participate is I want to lift up a prayer that God reveals what each of us needs to know in order to make this connection. Maybe the words will be coming out of my mouth, but I'm going to ask your participation in this way. If it means anything, just raise your hand towards my hand, which is raised to heaven, and we'll just say in this way, we're just symbolizing that we're all together on what we're praying about. And the prayer, just to make no mistake, is asking God to reveal what we cannot see on our own. Pretty simple prayer. So... If that's where you are, just ask, go ahead and and raise a hand with mine and I'll, I'll just conclude in a quick word on this. Lord God, you've given us this amazing book, this amazing writing of knowledge on who you are, what your plans are, what you're like, what you've already done, what you plan to do. Just this amazing, amazing book. And not just the book of John. I, Lord God, we're talking cover to cover. But we want to acknowledge this before you. We would like to intentionally, Lord, start with this first chapter and in, in, in holding to these truths. God, move us in a way beyond what we can understand to know that you are really real, that, that Christ is. Lord God, reveal to us how huge the idea you are the one and only. And there's no compromise on it and it's, it's so important. But there's a level to that we cannot understand on our own. So we're asking you on that reveal to us in the way it needs to be revealed. Lord God, you have offered us proof. Oh my goodness, Lord. As we read in Scripture, it's a, this perfect number of seven in completeness in, in this one book. But as we read through Scripture, as we even go through the day to day, how you continually prove to us you are really real. You're the one and only. You do prove it, but we need your eyes to see that. Uh, We can be so blind. Lord God, we ask for your revelation this morning that the truths would take hold, not halfway, not partway, but all the way. Lord God, may we be your children in that way. In the name of Christ, amen.